The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, if you could find your place in Hosea chapter 5, we're going to continue on in our study verse by verse through this minor prophet in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 5, and we're going to look at almost the whole chapter, just uh, verses 1 through 14 today. As you're doing that, I want to just give you a a little bit of an introduction uh, by way of telling you about a preacher from way back. You know, this text that we have been going through, especially last week, we noticed where there's a lot of judgment, but it's not random. It's judgment that's coming on God's people because they've sinned and because they've departed from God's Word. And we saw last week, maybe for the first time yet in this passage, in chapter 4, we saw how the priests, the, the preachers back then, played a big role in the sin of the people because they were not preaching God's Word. They were leading the people astray by not providing the leadership that was needed. Okay, And so it got me thinking this week, because there's more of that in this chapter, in chapter 5, but it got me thinking about, historically, the great need for preachers to actually preach the Word of God. That seems like a foregone conclusion, right? I mean, you would think, well, just by the name preacher, you would think they would know what the job is to preach the Word, right? Well, it's not that simple, apparently, because a lot of folks just don't seem to to get that. And that's my observation, my opinion. But there was a fella right at the beginning of the first Great Awakening... And his name was Theodore Frelinghausen. That's a great name, Frelinghausen. He was a Dutch Reformed pastor, theologian. He um, was up in the northeast, up in the New Jersey area, uh, which is where his family uh, settled. And as he preached uh, at the beginning, kind of at the, uh, almost like a precursor to the First Great Awakening, he was one of the preachers along with people like Gilbert Tennant or George Whitfield, you may have heard those names uh, around that time historically, that were powerful preachers of that time period. And they were uh, largely used by God to point people to Jesus and to preach the Word and to, to be instrumental in the Great Awakening that happened. God used them a, a great deal. And so this particular guy... Theodore Frelinghausen, he uh, was characterized, his preaching centered on a, a goal of this. He was, he was set on trying to convince people that they needed to evaluate or examine their lives to confirm whether or not their salvation was real. He, he was very uh, intentional about not allowing, I I guess that's the right word to use, not allowing people to play Christianity. Not not allow people to just 
Well, I'm gonna just uh, I'm not really gonna get you know totally engaged in this. I'm gonna kind of ride the fringes a little bit. You know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to get ridiculous about it. So you know, I'm not. I'm just gonna kind of kind of do pick and choose. Not gonna go all in. I'm just gonna. Kind of, you know, I'm, I might own a Bible, but I'm not necessarily going to read it all the time. You know, that type of thing. Well, he didn't want any of that. He wanted to really confront people with the truth of God to say, you need to really search your heart. And are you, are you really a Christian? Do you belong to Jesus? Have you been saved? And if you have been saved, how is your life changing because of that? Well... Naturally, as you might guess, that type of bold attitude drew some criticism from those in the culture. And so Frelinghausen was being uh, talked about quite a bit by those in the community, in the culture, in that area, because of his bold preaching. Let me read to you his response to those who uh, would criticize him and his preaching. He says, I care not what ignorant carnal men say behind my back. They are greatly deceived if they imagine they will put me to shame. For I would rather die a thousand deaths than not preach the truth. That's the kind of conviction that led to a great awakening in our country. No cares for his reputation among those who would criticize. No cares about his uh, personal gain in any way. His main concern, if I'm going to be a preacher of God's Word, I'd rather die than not preach the truth. And not just die, I'd rather die a thousand deaths than forsake this Word. That's how seriously he took his calling as a preacher. So he was not one that was going to be lumped into that category of preachers that weren't doing their job and were not preaching the Word and were not leading the people closer to Jesus. He was not that guy. And so, by God's grace, we won't fall into that category either. We're going to do our very best to read the Word, pray for understanding, and then follow it as closely as possible. Hosea chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 as we consider the judgment being announced. Here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 1, chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. 
They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness in the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he's unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray today that you'll take this word that we've read, that you'd open our hearts, open our minds, give us understanding by your Spirit. And Lord, I pray you would be gracious to us, that you might give us strength to be obedient. Help us to to see your truth clearly and obey as you've spoken to us. We pray all this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Now this 14-verse section here of Hosea kind of breaks up into two sections. Verses 1 through 7 is going to tell us about this accusation of guilt among God's people. And then as we get to verses 8 through 14, we're going to hear the announcement of judgment. So first, the accusation of guilt. Everybody's guilty before God. No one is left out. You know, we, we think about this maybe uh, in our subconscious, but if we read the New Testament even, we're in the Old Testament now in this minor prophet, and yet the theme has not changed because you go over to the book of Romans and you read chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who is excluded. You back up in chapter 3 in Romans a little bit to verse 10, and you read that quote from the Old Testament that Paul uses there, and you'll see that, that familiar phrase, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one. Listen to this, how it's just a blanket statement. There's no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. That's what we read in Romans 3 as he's quoting the Old Testament. So we're all uh, in the same boat. And that's a t- it's not a good boat. <laughs> we're not, you know, before we find Jesus, we're not headed in the right direction. So we're all guilty before God. And, and as the Bible tells us here in chapter 5, as we start out in verse 1, the preachers are guilty, the people are guilty, the royal family is guilty. You see in verse 1, uh, hear this priest, hear this house of Israel, listen house of the king, the judgment applies to you. So as I said before, as we picked up from last week, the preachers were the main culprits, right? Because they were charged with the responsibility to lead the people into God's Word, not away from it. And so the more they shirked their responsibility, the more they led the people astray. 
So they were failing at their chief responsibility. It would be almost equivalent now to a church who calls themselves a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Christian, God-honoring church, and yet not giving any care at all to evangelism and making disciples. Right? Think about how, how that doesn't make any sense from a biblical standpoint. What is the chief reason of existence for every church that claims to follow Jesus and His Word? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, right? The Great Commission, that's our number one job as a church and as individual followers of Christ. So if, if we are not uh, fulfilling that commission, we're not doing our main priority, our main task. That's, that's, there's lots of things we... Uh, can do, but there are fewer things that we absolutely have to do. So please understand that distinction. There's lots of things we can do. And, and uh, you know, every church is different because every church is located in a different geography with different people, with different gifts, with different resources. And so every church's vision for how they will accomplish the mission may look a little different, right? And that's good. There's, there's, uh, there's grace and mercy and variety. Okay? God has equipped different people in different ways. But every church that claims to follow the Bible has the same mission. And that is love God, love others, make disciples. It's the great commandment and the great commission. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and spirit, and, and strength. And, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. Then the great commission I mentioned just a moment ago. Make disciples of all nations. That, that's, our, that's our mandate. That's our task. So the preachers here were the main culprits because they've been a snare. Listen to the descriptive language there. In the end of verse 1, going into verse 2, they've been a snare. They've been a net spread out like they're trying to, to catch people in a trap. They've gone to great lengths to lead people astray. The Bible says they've gone deep in depravity in verse 2. And God knows all about it. Because you can't hide from God. You know, we can fool each other. What, what do we say most often when we're at church? Hey, how you doing? Fine, fine. How are you? Fine. Ain't nobody fine. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's got troubles. Everybody's got problems. Everybody walks in here carrying a burden of some kind. Right? Life's hard. It's okay to admit that. Because here, this is the place where we come for help. Right? One of my mentors in seminary who is still a, a good friend, I just spoke to him last week, in fact, he's been here, uh, Alvin Reed, who came back in March. He always used to, to tell us in class, the church is not a hotel for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. When you're broken, this is where you come. Right? We're not doing fine. And if we, if, if we think we are, maybe we're just not being honest with ourselves. See, God knows all about it. Verse 2, God's going to discipline those responsible. He says, I will chastise them. Verse 3, nothing is hidden from God's eyes. He says, I know, Ephraim, Israel is not hidden. Verse 4, their sin is so bad it keeps them from turning to God. Now imagine that. They, they feel such guilt and conviction. They don't turn to God, which is the very place they need to turn. It says in the, 
verse 4, they do not know the Lord. In, in verse 5, their pride has caused them to stumble in their sin. You know what we read in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's exactly what is happening to God's people in this passage. When you see in verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies against Him. They stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. You know, this, this brings up to me a, a really powerful illustration. Think about when you were younger, if, you, if you're not younger. Think about when you were younger. And if you're younger in the room, think about right now. Think about making a mistake, doing something wrong. And, and as a kid, a teenager especially, when you think about doing something wrong, you think about the worry that you might experience because, oh, I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, I'm going to be in trouble. And, and here, here's the interesting part of this illustration. There's two ways we can respond to making a mistake or doing something wrong. There's, there's two ways we can respond. The one who is not in a good loving, healthy relationship with their father. I'm going to use the father in, in human terms. It could be father or mother, but I'm going to use the father because of the illustration here. The one who is not in that type of good relationship with their father, same circumstance, here's what they will say. I really messed up. Don't tell my dad. But the same exact event in the life of one who has a loving, healthy relationship with their father. Same thing happens, but here's what they say. I've really messed up. I've got to call my dad. You see the difference? See, our, our sin could cause us to avoid going to God precisely when we need to go to Him the most. And see, if you don't have that good, close relationship, then you might say, oh, I've really messed up. I hope my dad doesn't find out. But if, if you know your father loves you, man, I'm, I'm in trouble. I need my dad. You see the difference? That, that relationship can be such a comfort, such a sense of, of peace and help when, when you know your Father loves you and you know you've done wrong, but you don't want to run away from Him. You want to run to Him because you need help. And see, sin can mess us up so badly that at the moment when we need Him the most, we run away. Why do you think we run uh, away from the church when something bad happens in our lives. The church ought to be the place we want to go for, for safety and help. Right? That's how the church is supposed to work. It's a family. And so when we're, when we're in need, when we're in trouble, the church ought to be our first, first place to go. 
but the sin here, the sin has caused the people, and this is, I believe, what we can learn from this, the sin causes the people to go away from God instead of run to God. Because the Bible says in, in verse 6, it talks about um, empty tradition. So, in other words, let me go check my boxes uh, because out of habit or routine, I'm going to still maybe go and do, in, in their context, I'm going to go and do this sacrifice because that's what I'm supposed to do. Or, you know, I'm going to go through the motions, but there's no heart engagement. You understand? So I'm still ch- checking my boxes. I'm still going through the motions, but it's just, it's just a ritual. It's, it's hypocritical. It's devoid of genuine covenant loyalty. So it's ineffective. Because without the evidence of true faith, just outward sacrifice won't do. Verse 6 says, they're going to go, they're going to seek the Lord, but they're not going to find Him. He's withdrawn from them. Because remember what Isaiah said about this same time? You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. That's a terrible commentary. The people have been unfaithful. Verse 7, parents have raised their children in their own sinful ways rather than in the fear of God. So religious traditions performed hypocritically is just going to hasten the destruction rather than turning it away. So that's the accusation God's prophet brings to His people because they're just not getting it. Does that make sense? They're not understanding what their need really is. And they're not running to the place where they need to go, which is God Himself. They're running away. So that's the accusation of guilt. Secondly, the announcement of judgment. Verse 8. God said it. That settles it. Sometimes we like to put a little interjection in there. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, that sounds good, but the middle part's unnecessary. See, because once God says it, that settles it. You understand? Y'all, y'all okay? Everybody all right? See, see when God... When God got, put this book in our hands, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. See, when God says it, that's, He doesn't need our affirmation for His Word to be true. So, God said it, that settles it. So now this announcement of judgment, verses 8 and 9, sound the alarm, judgment's coming. Ephraim's going to be devastated. God's Word will not be violated. It's sure. See, when God speaks, the debate's over. That, that's all there is to it. This is not a negotiation. God doesn't give us His Word and say, hey, tell me what you think about that. See if you approve. No, that's not how it works. When God speaks, that's the end of the debate. Nothing more to say. Judah is going to be judged for its guilt as well. Because remember, the kingdom's divided. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Israel and Judah. Verse 10 says they've moved the boundary. They show no respect for God's commands. It's almost like, um, hey, we're going to start this football game here, and uh, we'll see how it goes, but if the rules need to be adjusted as we go, because we're not doing as well, we'll just change that as we go, okay? That doesn't sound very fair, does it? That's what he's talking about, moving the boundary, okay? As we're starting out with God's rules, and so they show no respect for God's commands. They change the standard of right and wrong, true religion versus false religion, true God versus idols. So verse 10 and the second part of it, God's going to pour out His wrath on them like a flood of water. Imagine, anybody ever ridden over the Lake Murray Dam? A lot of people have probably driven over that. 
You know the part closest to the Lexington side of the dam where the floodgates are? You ever looked over the, the side there? Driving by, just kind of glance over? Nothing but rocks down there. It's just dry. You ever been over there when they opened the floodgates? You better not be anywhere down there. Because you can see trash and spray paint and stuff down there where people have walked down there when it's dry. You know, on down the Saluda River, like if you're going down I-126 towards Riverbank Zoo, you look over there to the right, see the river running parallel to the, to the highway. You ever seen the signs and the uh, alarms and sirens? You know why they do that? Because if you hear that, that means way up river, something happened. They, they let the floodgates open. And that means a torrent of water is about to rush down through that river and you better heed the alarm and get out of the way. You better pay attention, right? That's what's happening here. The alarm is sounding. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all, you need to turn back to God. You're not doing what He said. You're not paying attention to His Word. You really need to pay attention. The alarm is going off. What's going to happen if nobody pays attention to the alarm? Judgment's coming. It's coming like a rushing river after the floodgates have been let open. So, so God says, I'm going to pour my wrath on them like a flood of water. That is not good. It ought to be getting some folks' attention. It's like the dam just broke and the water's coming and the alarm has sounded, but people are oblivious. Does that ring a bell, by the way? Ring a bell to anything going on in our culture? Does it seem like people just aren't paying attention? I mean, do we watch the news? I mean, I try not to do it too often, but do we, do we listen to what's happening in our world? It's not good. Getting worse. Verse 11, Ephraim's trouble was already in progress because they had followed vanity. They had followed vanity determined to follow man's command. They're oppressed. They're crushed in judgment. So what does this tell us? See, God is many things. His character, uh, there's lots of description, uh, descriptive type of terms we can use to talk about who God is. His grace, mercy, love, kindness, forgiveness, uh, righteousness, holiness, justice. He's also sovereign. You know what sovereign means? It means he doesn't answer to anyone. He is the creator, therefore he's in a unique position. Okay, so God is sovereign. Verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, even back in verses 2 and 3, there's just evidence everywhere that God is running the show here. Okay? God is running the show. And so he has... Uh, divinely orchestrated the discipline of His people. What's the purpose of discipline? Is it to just be mean? Is it to inflict pain? No. The purpose of discipline is to correct. It's to show love. Let me show you how much I care about what happens to you because I'm trying to bring you back to the right direction. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to, to teach you this is right, this is not. And sometimes it takes discipline. Sometimes pain is a good teacher to show us. See, when we divert away from God's Word, it's not good for us. When we follow God's Word, 
that's what's best. It's glorifying to God. It's good for us to follow God's Word. He knows, he knows things we don't know. He's pointing us in the right direction for a reason. Divinely orchestrating discipline. He's, uh, this, this is what's helpful to me when we get to the end of this passage. Notice all the first person singular pronouns. Look, look in there and, and just see, you'll see the word I. I o, over and over, that's what we see. Look up to, uh, let's, let's start in uh, verse 9. I declare what is sure, the end, among the tribes of Israel. So God's word is sure. Verse 10, on them I will pour out my wrath. Verse 12, I am like a moth to Ephraim and rottenness to the house of Judah. Verse 14, see, at this point, this is the, the last verse. Up to here, Judah and Israel have tried to find relief from their issues from other sources, not God. So, so they're looking in the wrong place. It reminds me of an old song. Looking for love in all the wrong places. You remember that? Yeah, and what's the, what's the end of that story? It's not good, right? It never has a happy ending, right? Because you know what you need, just not looking in the right place to find it. So you're looking in a place where you're not going to find what you need. It's always going to end badly. Israel and Judah are looking in other places, trying to find relief from a spiritual problem, and they're not going to the God of the universe who is their only source of help. And they're not going there. So neither kingdom turned to the Lord for their healing. They had gone, been gone from God for far too long. So verse 14 is filled with first person, singular. God speaking. God's about to send judgment. L look what he says in verse 14. I will be like a lion. I will be like a young lion. I will tear them to pieces. I will go away. I will carry away. Nobody, this, this is a very profound statement. Nobody can deliver us from God's judgment except for God. Just, just think about that. In fact, let's, uh, that's a good place to, to end. No one can deliver us from God's judgment except for God Himself. So th think about uh, a familiar passage. This is a, a perfect way to conclude. John chapter 3, if you consider John's Gospel, John chapter 3, uh, two verses, very familiar, 16 and 17. God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world. He loved the world just so. That's what that means, by the way. God loved the world in this way. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. What about the next verse, though? For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Right? Now, let's go a little bit further to John three thirty-six, the last verse in that chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son 
will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Isn't that interesting? In the first half of that statement, that two-part statement, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, what would you expect the counterpoint to say? He who does not believe, right? You would expect that. But that's not what it says. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know what that means? Please listen. There is a direct correlation between belief and obedience. If you believe in the Son, you have life. But if you don't obey the Son, you don't have life. You have the wrath of God. So, belief leads to obedience. We, we read this Word. We pray that the Holy Spirit gives us understanding, discernment. And then once we understand the Word, we don't just put it down and just say, oh, file it away. Okay, I read the Word. Awesome. No. Not even just agree with it. We have to do it. We have to obey the Word of God. Isn't that part of discipleship? Isn't that part and parcel of the Great Commission? After you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. That's what the Bible tells us to do. So it's, sometimes it's uncomfortable to think about God's wrath. I mean, isn't God supposed to be loving? This is why it's so dangerous to emphasize one particular attribute of God's character over and above the others. Right? To the, almost to the exclusion of the others. Is God loving? Is He gracious? Is He merciful? Is He forgiving? Well, yeah, absolutely. But that's not all He is. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. But because He is perfectly holy, righteous, and just, He has to punish sin. He can't just let it slide. And so, if we want to get a glimpse of what it looks like for God to punish sin, all we have to do is take a stroll past Golgotha. Take a good, long look at the cross. You will see how God punishes sin. He had His son nailed to a tree. That's pretty severe, right? That's the penalty for sin. But because Jesus went there, it means we don't have to. Jesus did that on our behalf so that when we read John 3.16, we don't just read over it and just not notice what's happening because we've read it so many times, we've heard it so many times, it's so familiar. We, we can't miss the profound nature of what is being said right there. This is how God loved the world. He sent His Son. His only Son. So that 
whoever, whoever does what? Believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. You have to believe. And John 3.36, what does believe mean? Obey. It all goes together. See, God, this sounds so weird, God sent Jesus to save us from God. God is so holy, so righteous, and so just. His wrath is aimed at sin. It's the only way that we don't get that the cross see when that when that dam broke and the water came rushing down it's almost as if because of that Jesus stepped in front of us and drank every drop (laughs) this is so good And then he said, it's finished. That's how much Jesus did for us. That's how much God loves us. And that's how bad our sin is, that it took that much to cover us. That is not a small thing. It's amazing. It's a miracle. Believe in Jesus. Obey His Word. Be saved. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 